0: Oh dear. Um, well, I'm I'm not a young person. I'm not a woman. <laughs> I must be indigenous somewhere. Uh, thank you to Kenny and Nina and the pioneers for having me. It's having grown up in Bloomington, Indiana. It's really. It's, Interesting to come to California. We we always wanted to do that. <laughs> I'm going to be serious today. Um, my journey here began high in the Himalayas. This is in Qinghai, in uh, northwestern China. It's in the Tibetan Plateau, and there is a river that was once known as the Mother River. And it was known as the Mother River because all the different tribes emerged there. This is in China's Lus Plateau, in the upper and middle reaches of the Yellow River, which was originally the Mother River. This is Lus. This is a geologic soil which was created by glacier movements high in the Himalayas and was deposited onto the, the plateau below. And it's a very rich mineral soil, but it requires organic material in order to be fertile. And over a long period of time, it, these sediments grew up, and so did a civilization. This is the birthplace of the Han Chinese race. So if you dig around in there, you might find some interesting things. Now, this is the most populous race on the planet. If you go to the southwest, you find a fully functional forested ecosystem in Sichuan. And if you go to the northeast, you find a fully functional grassland ecosystem in Mongolia. There's tremendous amounts of evidence that the Chinese race emerged in a mixed forest and grassland ecosystem. There's evidence of humans and their ancestors, the Chinese say for a million and a half years in this area. And this is known primarily by most experts to be the second place on Earth where settled agriculture began approximately 10,000 years ago. Now, a tremendous civilization grew up here, but as they were, were building this civilization, they sowed the seeds of their own destruction. And Ultimately, they collapsed this area. And by 10,000 years ago, the Lus Plateau was no longer the center of power and affluence. In 1995, I was asked by the World Bank to begin to film and document this area. And I found a fully degraded ecosystem. And it was astonishing to me that the largest ethnic group on the planet could come from a place that was so fundamentally ecologically destroyed. It virtually had no vegetation. You could stand on a hilltop and look all around. Most people described it as a desert. But you found these enormous gullies and these gullies are evidence that every year there's rainfall and the rainfall takes away huge amounts. And we, we started to want to understand, I wanted to understand much more about how this happened. And I found that it was completely understandable. They cut the trees, then they tried farming on the hillsides, and then they raised goats and sheep, which ate every, everything down to the roots. And this created a cycle of poverty and ecological destruction as each generation further depleted the the ecosystems. So by a thousand years ago, this was no longer uh, a place of great artistic and scientific endeavor. It was a place for extreme poverty. And they passed this from generation to generation. We also started to consider that this place is analogous to almost every other cradle of civilization. So if you study this place in a way, you're studying not just Chinese history, but you're chi- studying the history of humanity. Now, this is a sad story for for humans, but Ecologically, it also causes tremendous impacts. And these impacts are to the hydrological cycle. So if you reduce the vegetative cover, you change the dynamic when the raindrops hit the ground. And they don't infiltrate, and they're not retained in the biomass. They cause tremendous amounts of erosion, and with this, the fertility and productivity. And if you're doing this at scale, the Lis Plateau is approximately the size of France, then you find huge amounts of sedimentation going into the river. Now it also, because the sedimentation goes into the river, it's really easy for the river to flood. So 1,500 times in recorded history, the Chinese have kept very good records, the Yellow River has has flooded. This is the effect of 1.6 billion tons of sediment going into the river. And this is what causes the dust storms, which blow across Northeast Asia and uh, around the world. So this creates a sediment layer Now, the Chinese have been on a high, and they decided they were going to fix it. So they used geographical information systems to map every watershed in the plateau. Then they used enterprise software to track every intervention and investment, and then they used participatory assessment mechanisms to transfer knowledge and engage the local people into the project. And they, it took them several years, actually, to analyze what they were going to do. Everyone could see the problem, but how do you solve this? And eventually, they made some decisions. And they decided to divide the ecological and the economic land. They basically made an econometric evaluation. They looked at this large, degraded landscape, and they said, many of these places are useless for productivity, and the ecological function, not services, the function is vastly more valuable than the production here. So they released large areas to the environment, and they concentrated economic activity and agriculture in smaller areas. So as they did this, it wasn't one thing or another, this, this wasn't something that everybody was keen to agree to. That should go up a little maybe, but anyway, you can't understand it. But they eventually, through participatory assessment mechanisms, engaged the whole population. And they used another technique. They paid them. So, by doing this, they transitioned the local population from Neolithic agriculture to much more sustainable agriculture in one generation. And we know people who were who's, who illiterate whose children now go to the top universities in China. They planted a lot of trees. This is not one thing or another. They, they terraced, they infiltrated water, they planted trees, they did all sorts of integrated things, and they really transitioned the people so rapidly into a modern economy. And also, the young people didn't go into agriculture. And this is 1995, and the next shot, it's gonna transition into 2009. So in 15 years, they were able to accomplish this. Now, this is a fairly dramatic thing again, 1995, 2009 this affects hydrology, fertility, soil moisture, microbiologic communities. It affects everything And it makes me very... I'm going to take Kenny's water. Thank you, Kenny. (laughs) It makes me very philosophical. It makes me consider time. And in geologic time, this earth had no atmosphere. And the fresh water was very different. And over evolutionary time, we have, the the Earth has changed into a magnificent garden. And it's done this through natural processes of evolution. And photosynthesis is the driving force for this. And so from geologic materials, we have built up huge amounts of organic material as each generation has laid down its life and and given up its body to be recycled into the next generation. And this has created the atmosphere that we breathe and the hydrological cycle that we depend on and all the fertility in the soil. And this is a biochemical photoreactive process that we're not going to duplicate. And we've made, it it has created a huge world that is extraordinary in its beauty. And from the Lus Plateau, I've had the opportunity now to go everywhere in the world. And to look at these places, which are still functional, and to realize, that human beings only began to alter these systems tens of thousands of years ago. And maybe 35, 40,000 years ago, we probably became very good hunters and took out the top of the food chain. We probably learned this from some other good hunters. And we emulated them. And then, about 10,000 years ago, we began to use settled agriculture. And we used slash and burn techniques. So we cut the trees, burned down the undergrowth, and then we could farm in these areas. But this would deplete the fertility very, very rapidly. This is in Ethiopia, just two or three years ago. So this is still taking place now in many parts of the world. And I can tell you scientifically exactly what this does to soil moisture, microbiologic communities, fertilities, microclimates below the canopy. it's, It's devastating. So why are we doing this? It leads to the collapse of the ecosystems. And any civilization who has followed this trajectory has had the same result. So there's plenty of evidence that this disrupts the hydrological cycle, lowers fertility, destroys microclimates, creates enormous deserts. Um, So this is pretty much scientifically understood. So why do we keep doing this? Why are we repeating history again and again? And I started wondering, okay, there's clearly a link between our behaviors and our motivations and the outcomes. And in traveling around and looking at the amazing biodiversity, I found that actually we have somehow devalued as Kenny was talking we we have we have let go of of this and we've actually said it has no value because our economy is based on the production and consumption of goods and services. So the fact that all of the goods and services come from functional ecosystems is is wrong. So there's something we, we've based the global economy on a mistake. A mistake that even a cameraman can see. (laughs) So what can we do about this? How can we address this? So now we're in a situation where we have devalued the things which provide our air, water, food, and energy. And we have said that things which are manufactured, which within a few years turn into junk and fill up the, the landfills around the world, are more valuable than these things. Well, how is that possible? Do we really believe that? And if we don't believe that, then why is this the case? So I've been puzzling because the more I go to the pristine areas or the massively degraded areas, I find that actually I can understand this. There are really only two states, functional and dysfunctional. And if you're, if you're moving toward dysfunction, you're ultimately going to collapse the system. And if you're moving forward, you're, you're in, in, in a functional system, you have everything. This is the trajectory from the Chinese list plateau. It leads to ecosystem collapse. But they made an intervention. And this intervention changed the development trajectory. The point where they made the intervention is the paradigm shift that determines whether we survive and become sustainable, because we understand the basis of fertility, air, water, and energy. So there's many scientific implications to this. And I'm not going to just repeat. I'm going to take some more of Kenny's water. But, so I've been studying this for some time now. They let me into a PhD program, it's amazing. Um, (laughs) But really, what is interesting is, it's possible to rehabilitate large-scale damaged ecosystems. Isn't that extraordinary? Why aren't we doing that? And if we did that, what would happen? We're feeding seven billion people on the planet and at least two billion hectares could be restored now. I don't think there's a problem with food security if we can get food for seven billion with 25% of the planet degraded. But why? Why is this, why are we doing this? So what's stopping us from restoring the planet? And my conclusion is Groucho was right. (laughs) Actually, Carl might have been wrong. (laughs) Carl was saying, Basically, that, I mean, what Carl what was talking about, and I've lived 32 years in China and have been throughout the Soviet Union and North Korea three times, what he was talking about was state capitalism. That's what all of those countries have been doing, not communism at all, state capitalism. Capitalism. But there are tremendous economic implications which go beyond anything that we've considered before. Because we're making some fundamental mistakes. There are three reasons why you're seeing everything that you're seeing now. The economic model we have creates a perverse incentive to degrade the ecosystem because it devalues the natural systems. It's impossible to have continuous growth, and it's immoral. Right now, we say that our economy is derived from production and consumption of goods and services, the GDP. So all money is derived, the total sum of the money on the planet comes from the total amount of goods and services. But ecosystem function is vastly more valuable. So that means the global economy is founded on a flaw in logic. (laughs) Not everybody's clapping. (laughs) We have some moral implications, too. By by doing this, we've disenfranchised billions of people. So there are billions of people around the world who were never asked Do you think that wealth comes from production and consumption of goods and services? And we have imposed that on them, and they are poor because of that. But the fact is, we're all going to die. And and the indigenous people, what they've been saying forever is correct. And this brings me to what I really hope you'll go home with. What is money? What is this thing? And now we say that money comes from production and consumption of goods and services. But that is illogical. It's immoral and it's impossible. And it leads to vast deserts and degradation and, and poverty and disparity around the world. So what would happen if money were based on ecosystem function? Suddenly, everybody's work, especially everybody who's motivated by money, (laughs) would be going toward conserving and restoring ecological function. this seems to be the pathway to sustainability and survival for humanity and the planet. We don't have to be confused. It's logical. All the things which are collapsing and failing around are logical. They have to happen that way. You can turn up the audio a little bit because I was hanging out of a helicopter. You can experience the, the fear with me. This is in Chiapas in Mexico. I'm sorry, Mexico. And I just put it in to end because of the power of nature and the value of nature. And if we make that the basis of our economy, we will survive, thank you.